Welcome to the Welcome You podcast, where all your humanness is welcome. In these episodes, I'll be offering mindfulness-based practices and somatic psychotherapy tools for healing attachment wounds, surviving emotional abuse, and recovering your sense of self. I am your host, Dr. Cynthia Garner, and it is my honor to offer these skills in the context of my own life experience and in response to listeners' real-world challenges and questions. If you are wondering how to navigate difficult relationships, communicate more skillfully, regulate your nervous system in the midst of conflict, and set fierce boundaries that heal and empower, you are in the right place. You belong right here where you already are. So I invite you to grab a cup of tea and your favorite blanket and rest as you put out the welcome mat for yourself and join me on this journey. Welcome to the first episode of Welcome You. I am so excited to be here with you today, and this podcast has been a long time in the making. So I'm really grateful, if you're listening right now, that you're willing to come on this journey. Today we're going to be talking about our essential humanness and what it means to belong. A lot of times when we have core relationship wounding, This has happened at a very early time in our life when we were forming our primary attachments and deciding how relationships worked. So I'm going to share a little bit today from my own personal experience, but also offer you some practices that you can use if you did not experience a secure primary attachment with your caregiver when you were little, which so many of us unfortunately did not. And also, if your attachment style is causing problems in your adult relationships, I want to invite you, before we dive in, to consider and reflect for yourself, what is your attachment story? How do you experience belonging in the world? And how is this informed, perhaps, by your very earliest experiences of belonging and how you decided that relationships work when you were really little? I also want to encourage you to stay tuned for the end of the episode, where we'll be introducing my favorite segment, Get Down and Dirty with Dr. Cindy which is an opportunity for you to call in and ask your questions about relationships and how to bring the best version of yourself so that you can reclaim yourself in the midst of relational conflict and upheaval. The Welcome You podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. Your presence and support matter more than you know. So I want to start our inquiry 
into belonging by talking about attachment. Any psychology textbook that covers human development will summarize the work of Mary Ainsworth and John Bowlby from the late 1960s and 70s that shaped modern psychotherapy. These researchers theorize that based on our early experiences with our caregivers, we develop schemas or beliefs about ourselves as worthy or unworthy of care and attention, and others as reliable or unreliable sources of support. Secure attachment occurs when we experience reliable attention and support and our needs are met. And insecure attachment occurs when there's a disruption in the process of bonding between the child and their primary caregiver. This is a type of trauma and may take the form of abuse or neglect, or it might be more subtle, such as lack of affection or response from a caregiver. Transgenerational trauma occurs when wounds are passed down through our genes and behaviors from generation to generation because there has not been resolution or healing. In fact, epigenetic research on transgenerational transmission of traumatized behaviors in mammals even shows that exposure to stress hormones in utero permanently impacts the behavior of offspring, even when those offspring are never exposed to the traumatized parent. So I'll just review briefly the four attachment styles that are recognized by researchers, which inform our behavior on a cognitive level, but operate outside of our conscious awareness. We could be securely attached, which means that we have strong bonds, we are able to trust, we have this ability to ask for help when we need it, and it seems like people who have secure attachment relationships in their younger years end up also enjoying more securely attached relationships in their adult years. So secure attachment is one type of attachment. We can also experience what is called avoidant attachment. And this is an attachment style where we actually, as the name says, avoid relationships, mostly as a protective strategy for keeping ourselves safe. Because somewhere in our early relationships, we probably learned that we didn't get our needs met in that relationship and it wasn't safe to trust or count on our primary caregiver. So this can create a relatively deep wound, maybe even an abandonment wound, where deep within we are so afraid of being left or being hurt again that we actually protect ourselves by avoiding relationships. And there's all kinds of ways that we protect ourselves from relationships like binging and numbing or drugging or promiscuity or just simply running away when we get too close. I personally know that I have, a, I lean towards an avoidant attachment style. And for me, that has meant that for many, many years, I am much happier on my own than living in a intimate relationship or opening myself up, making myself vulnerable to getting hurt the way I have been in the past. So avoidant is our kind of second classification of attachment styles. The third classification is anxious attachment style. 
And this attachment style can show up as codependency or also really this kind of fearfulness around attachment. So needing to be close or else not feeling secure. We might also experience a kind of, I hate you, don't leave me. This kind of conundrum that is very confusing in relationships where uh, we are you know, overwhelmed by the anxiety created in the relationship, kind of constantly questioning our belonging and feeling this sense of, am I worthy of this person's care and attention? And then when they end up turning away or turning their attention towards themselves or towards another person or even towards their professional role, we can end up feeling anxious or jealous or like they don't care about us anymore. The fourth attachment style is a disorganized attachment style. And this can be very, very confusing. Uh, this is the attachment style that shows up as uh, being really attentive in one minute and then violent and aggressive in the next minute. A lot of people who are the abusers in emotionally abusive relationships likely experienced a very disorganized attachment style when they were young. So this means that they probably experienced a primary caregiver who was unpredictable, maybe would suddenly lash out in a temper tantrum for no reason. They might have experienced absence, long periods of absence of their caregiver, like uh, maybe even complete and total neglect. You might have experienced being a young child, feeling like you were all alone, always having to do things yourself. And then when your parent or caregiver did show up, they actually weren't a safe person to be around. So you'd spend your time without them wishing they were there, and you'd spend your time with them wishing that they weren't there. This creates a kind of chasm in our sense of identity. Often we will sacrifice our sense of self in order to belong in this relationship and to be accepted. And we're constantly compromising who we are in order to keep ourselves safe and in order to keep our needs met. So these attachment styles, we all kind of exist within a continuum of these styles. They're also not fixed forever and ever for the rest of your life. If you had a disorganized attachment with a primary caregiver, that does not necessarily mean that you are doomed forever and ever to be a disorganized attached person. There are opportunities that we have to work with the neuroplasticity of our brain to actually rewire our sense of belonging and our relationship to ourselves that can heal our relationships to others. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves and you start psychoanalyzing your attachment style and trying to figure out why you are the way you are, please know that uh, these podcasts, this offering that I'm bringing to you here, these practices that we'll be doing are not a substitute for therapy. 
if you are chronically kind of finding yourself anxious or in fear or dysregulated or you're in an unsafe situation, it's really important to get help from a mental health professional. There are a number of practices that I hope to offer you here that actually may supplement and support you in this journey that I hope you'll go on with me as we start to bring our attention to our relationship with ourselves first. This is the foundation of mental health, is having this caring and kind and compassionate relationship with your own experience. There's this way that we can, with mindfulness practice, kind of welcome ourselves to belong right here where we already are in the present moment and give ourselves permission to have the experience that we're already having rather than having to do all this work in order to be somebody special so that we can get our needs met by someone else or rather than having to wear masks or put on a persona so that we can find belonging in the world. This is an opportunity really to find belonging where you already are by offering it to yourself. And I'm actually going to start here before we dive in to really kind of concrete interventions and specific situations that you might find yourself in. I'm going to start by just offering some basic tools for grounding your attention and regulating your nervous system here, right, wherever you are. So I invite you, even if you're driving, you can do this, but I wouldn't close your eyes. Uh, I invite you to just start to notice your body in space and just feel the sensations of pressure where your body makes contact with the ground. Maybe noticing the sensations of your feet pressing on the floor or your hands resting in your lap. And just starting to notice the weight of your body as you're resting here. And what I'll invite you to do as you start to experience this kind of physical sensation of your body resting on this surface that you're sitting or lying on is I want you to notice the support that's available from the chair or the floor underneath of you, or maybe even the car seat if you're driving. And I just invite you to notice that this support that's being offered to you is being offered without any conditions. The earth is not requiring you to do anything in order to continue holding you up. Gravity doesn't have any expectations of how you be, and it will continue to keep you firmly rooted on the earth. And so welcoming yourself the same way this supportive floor or chair underneath of you is welcoming you. Giving yourself permission to just belong right here where you already are. And just notice what this is like to give yourself this permission. 
You might even start to bring awareness to your senses. You might notice the movement of the breath moving in and out of your body. You might notice sounds. You might even choose to place a hand on your heart or on your belly and feel the movement of the breath as you note the rising and falling of your chest. All of these things, these kind of automatic sensory perceptive organs are doing what they're doing without you needing to get an A plus on a test, without you needing to get just the right gift or without needing to have enough money in the bank. These basic life-sustaining sensory perceptive organs are doing what they're doing without any requirements of you. And so letting the senses be another way that you're welcoming yourself to be just as you are right here in this moment. And so there's actually a reason that bringing attention to our five senses can help us regulate in times of stress or anxiety. And this goes back to our really early evolution. So when our brains were developing, they kind of developed from the bottom up. And when we're in the womb, the first part of our brain to develop is our brain stem. And this is the part of our brain that's, that's responsible for our essential life functions. So our breath, our heartbeat, our senses. And when this part of our brain was kind of evolving to be the way it is today, we were still kind of in our early human state living on the savanna. And this was really our survival brain. So we got information through our senses about whether or not the environment was safe. I like to use the example of a tiger. So if we notice kind of the twitch of a blade of grass, if we're an early human living in the savanna, we might think that that's a tiger. We might go on alert thinking we need to prepare to either run away or to fight. So this is our fight flight response. And when our fight flight response is activated, Basically what happens is the part of our brain called the amygdala dumps a whole bunch of stress hormones into our system. And this kind of mobilizes us for an attack. We have blood rushing to our limbs, our pupils dilate and constrict so that we can see really clearly in one direction. Our hearing becomes more acute. Our heart rate increases, our digestion stops. And basically all of our energy is diverted from our kind of non-essential functions towards this critical survival. And so when this part of our brain activates, what we have happen is we have a kind of shutdown of the front part of our brain, which is called the prefrontal cortex. And when this part of the brain shuts down, basically our logical reasoning and our executive functioning and our choice, our decision-making, they all go offline because we don't need to be planning or thinking about what we are going to do in the future if we are about to be eaten by a tiger. So because we kind of get hijacked 
into fight flight very, very frequently in our modern life, what we have is this experience of kind of chronic reactivity or chronic hyper arousal, which means we're kind of living in a state of constant fight flight. If you have experienced trauma, this is often heightened. So you might even get kind of stuck on on. You might be very jumpy. You might feel like everything's out to get you or, or startle very easily. Uh, you might have a lot of catastrophic thinking. And all of these are kind of habitual responses to a nervous system that has been conditioned to constantly scan for threat. If you think about our early experiences as young children or even in the womb, if the input that we're getting to our system is unpredictable and arrhythmic, then we kind of develop this super heightened sense of threat detection. If we are lucky enough to have a calm, regulated, mentally healthy mother who takes really good care of her body during her pregnancy and there's no relational conflict in those early years, then our nervous system gets to establish a baseline of much more regulation and stability and predictability. So this is where we can intervene on our own behalf, even as adults, if we have traumatized nervous systems. We can start to offer ourselves the missing experience, this experience that we didn't get to have as a child of rhythmic sensory input. So where do we have rhythmic sensory input available? Actually, it's right here inside of our bodies. We can start with our breathing. Our breathing is very closely linked to our parasympathetic nervous system, which is the branch of our nervous system that allows us to rest and digest. And when we can bring our attention to the sensations of our breath and just notice that rhythmic movement of the body, or even get in touch with the beating of the heart, this can be very, very stabilizing, even in the midst of crisis. This is why taking belly breaths is a primary intervention for anxiety. And it's a great tool to use in the midst of conflict. Now, focusing attention on the breath can be quite challenging, especially when the mind or our thoughts are very, very loud. If you have been in a abusive relationship or in a relationship dynamic that has taken up quite a bit of your mental real estate and you're kind of living in a state of chronic threat around that relationship, what you might be experiencing is a level of anxiety characterized by intrusive thoughts and rumination that can really affect your mental health and your well-being may even be affecting your ability to sleep at night, your ability to regulate yourself or be present for your children. And I find just from my own personal experience, 
intrusive thoughts have been one of my kind of primary symptoms of relational trauma. And while focusing on the breath and giving myself permission to just take a few rounds of breath can definitely be stabilizing in the midst of a conflict or when I'm kind of freaking out about something in the moment, what I've noticed is that if I try to do a more formal meditation practice where I'm just sitting and noticing my breathing, that the intrusive thoughts become so overwhelming to me that I almost end up re-traumatizing myself if I'm trying to focus on my breath and I go into kind of a state of panic. Uh, This happened to me a lot in the years after my divorce when I was first starting to develop a meditation practice. And I noticed frequently that as soon as I sat down on my meditation cushion, I would start to kind of get a little mini panic attack. I would get this feeling of uh, like terror and constriction and then like I couldn't breathe and then this kind of mobilization of my limbs, like I just had to jump up and run away as fast as I could. And so working with this in meditation was very, very difficult until I worked with a man named David Trelevin who has a program called the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Training. And in that training, he helped me to understand that I was actually re-traumatizing myself in meditation and by trying to focus on parts of my experience that were very, very stressful, it was actually kind of, I was kind of over-attending to traumatic stimuli while I was doing that. So what I needed to learn how to do and, and what I was fortunate enough to gain from his training was I needed to learn how to establish resting places for my attention that had a quality of safety. Sometimes those were internal anchors, like anchors or or places where I could rest my attention inside of my experience, but actually more often they were external anchors. So I'd like to offer those of you who are listening right now an opportunity to practice with an external anchor. And this is just kind of an opportunity to kind of reclaim your mental real estate, to do this sort of attentional training where you're putting your attention where you want it and not letting it get hijacked and taken away down this train of thought around relationship drama. So I'll invite you just wherever you are to bring attention to what you're seeing through the eyes. And this might be a landscape out the window. It might be a wall that you're looking at inside your home. It might be the ceiling if you're lying on your bed. It might even be the road in front of you if you're driving. And so as you're focusing your attention on this landscape of seeing, I'm just gonna invite you to take in the entire landscape of seeing as it appears before you and start to notice colors that you see. Noticing maybe areas of lightness or shadow, maybe becoming aware of textures that you're seeing. Might notice shapes that are appearing. 
maybe some movement. There might be some movement in the landscape that's happening in front of you. And if there's no movement, you can notice that. And so just kind of taking in this entire landscape with this spirit of investigation and curiosity. You might even just note three things you see. And maybe as you're being aware of what you're seeing, now we can shift attention to hearing and notice what do you hear? You might be hearing the sound of my voice. What other sounds are present? Can you name two things that you hear? And then maybe you can shift attention now to what you're smelling. Maybe there's just one thing you can identify in your environment that has a scent. Might be the smell of old coffee in your car, might be some essential oils that you keep nearby, might just be the smell of clean clothing, or the smell of your shampooed hair. And just letting yourself ground your attention with this practice of just orienting to the senses. Now this practice we just did, I would just call it kind of a three, two, one practice. We did three things we see, two things that we hear, one thing we can smell, and just kind of notice what your experience is now. The more we do a practice like this, the more it's going to help us kind of return to the present moment and to what's actually here in front of us during moments of reactivity and give us just that little bit of space so that we can regulate our nervous system. I like to think of it, if we go back to the tiger metaphor, I like to think of it as if we have time to stop and smell the flowers. This sends our brain a message that there's no tiger chasing us. And so in our modern world where threat is everywhere all around us, we're actually most of the time probably not living in the present moment, but really kind of focused on what's happening in the future or what has happened in the past or our story about what will happen in the future because of what has happened in the past. And this can be very, very exhausting for our nervous system. So as your basic kind of skill in this first episode, my offering to you is just to start to notice what information is coming in through your senses. And if you have moments of feeling like you're getting hijacked or you're going into a panic attack or you're feeling overwhelmed, this kind of sensory awareness practice can be a really helpful way to just kind of bring yourself back to your own experience. When you do this, you give yourself permission to be exactly who you are. You don't have to have somebody else's experience of seeing or hearing or smelling. You get to have your own. And this also helps to start to build new neural pathways so that you can change your habits 
around being kind of caught up in a spiral of thinking about your relationships that can often take us down a rabbit hole away from ourselves and we end up working really hard with our brains and with our bodies and we're kind of chronically overtaxing our nervous system in order to get this sense of belonging with someone else. So anytime you can, I invite you to give yourself the belonging that you're seeking from external relationships and just start to cultivate this inner awareness and this relationship with yourself as a starting point. If you're interested in a longer version of these practices that I've offered in this podcast, they'll be available on the website welcomeyoupodcast.com and you can download those for listening to offline so that you can use them at any time. So that chime means that it is time for our delicious segment, Get Down and Dirty with Dr. Cindy. So I want to just put the title of this segment in context. We are not necessarily going to talk dirty in this segment, although it might happen from time to time, but relational conflict can be very messy. And it makes sense that we want to avoid this mess. But it's really, really helpful to carve out some intentional time to skillfully kind of dip our toe in to these stuck places. Because what can happen if we avoid and resist bringing our attention to our experiences of difficulty is that our feelings and our discomfort can kind of build up inside us. And if you think of like a volcano that doesn't have a steam vent, but the pressure is building and building and building inside, what ends up happening is we can end up exploding or experiencing reactivity or basically losing ourselves in the midst of conflict in ways that we really regret later on. What we'll do in this segment is we will actually kind of apply the principles of mindfulness and somatic psychotherapy to start to lean into our stuck places and to investigate with some curiosity and some kindness the places where our relationships get dirty and murky. The Buddhists say, no mud, no lotus. And this is kind of a metaphor for how when we are willing to get our hands dirty or to explore these areas of difficulty, then we have this opportunity to turn poison into medicine and to blossom. So this doesn't necessarily mean that we want to dive deep into our wounding and stay there as a way of figuring ourselves out or finding answers. Rather, it's more of an invitation to not have to fix ourselves, not have to understand why we are the way we are on a cognitive level, and just to give ourselves permission to be the way we are. We're going to use this very important skill of pendulation to do this safely. So pendulation basically means that we start by establishing anchors for our attention that are like safe resting places. And then from there, we can slowly ease our way in and out 
of the experience of difficulty, knowing that at any time, if we become overwhelmed, we can return to this place of safety. And here is a message from our first caller. Hello, I am going through a transition with my significant other. It's been a two-year process. Um, I got a new job, and my husband had to give up his so that I could come do it. Us being here has been hard on him. He feels like he's falling behind, and within his own insecurities, he has blamed me for them. And it's gotten to a point where it has become a focal point in our marriage whenever there is fighting. Um, he's an incredible human being. Um, I think he's amazing. I think he has so much to offer this world, but he's just in a place of trying to find himself. My question for you is how can we move forward and how can I keep my side strong and not fall into a place of resentment and insecurities around who I am as a person? How can I find myself and continue this marriage through this hard time? So first of all, I just want to acknowledge how hard you are working to take care of everyone around you. And it sounds like your energy has been going outwards to others for a really long time. I feel, hearing your message, I feel this heaviness and this weight in my heart. And from my own personal experience, I just want to share with you that I know something about really being dedicated to the well-being and the happiness of people around me who are struggling with my thriving and my success and how this can easily turn into a blame game where people who are kind of in this state of chronic blaming and shaming they end up sort of holding you accountable because you're successful. They, they hold you accountable for their lack of success. And it's almost like there's this equation in their minds that's something along the lines of, like, if I can let this person know how much I am struggling, then I will feel better by kind of giving them my unhappiness, therefore I can take theirs. But it doesn't really work that way, as we know. And the other thing that I'm hearing in your share is what sounds like a habitual pattern for your husband that most likely was learned behavior from his own experience. So blaming and kind of turning the responsibility for your well-being outwards towards those around you, this is a wounded place for him. This is a place where as a child, he learned these behaviors. Maybe he witnessed them or experienced them from a caregiver. Sounds like he was probably never good enough or always getting kind of shamed no matter how hard he tried or no matter what he did. He probably didn't get recognized for doing a good job or being enough 
just the way he was without having to prove himself. So if at all possible, I know it's a hard pill to swallow, but if at all possible in your shoes, my recommendation would be to first and foremost, absolutely prioritize taking care of yourself. So noticing that this kind of habitual pattern is cropping up and doing what you need to do to kind of double down on your self-care to make up for the depletion that you're experiencing in this relationship. And that might mean communicating your needs in a different way or being really clear about needing to have space and time to care for yourself as an investment in the relationship as a whole because your system is kind of exhausted and depleted from having spent so much energy over so many years caring for others. And this comes back also to what I'm guessing might be a part of your history of really offering your own coping and skillfulness to those in your immediate family who may not have been coping skillfully themselves. So we can become pretty habituated to caring for others in our circle of care before we turn that light of loving awareness on ourselves. So here's where we have the opportunity to kind of flip the script. So step number one, definitely prioritizing your own well-being, doubling down on that self-care, giving yourself permission to do what you need to do to be resourced and regulated so that you can show up in these dysregulated and disorganized relationships from a place of groundedness and well-being. And the other thing that I would also recommend to you maybe as step two would be to offer yourself kind of a steam vent from time to time. This might mean upping your physical exercise or just giving yourself some space to move your body in a way that expresses these kind of pent up emotions. This might be like a movement class or yoga or just going for a run or maybe some dancing. There's a couple of modalities of mindful movement like five rhythms or even ecstatic dance that give the body kind of this opportunity to move freely and, and feel your feelings rather than have to think through your feelings. So these little moments of giving yourself permission to have your own experience and be with your own feelings and give them some space are crucial so that they don't explode out of you in this volcanic way when you are triggered in these relationship dynamics where these habitual patterns of behavior come up. So the third thing I would recommend to you is also really maybe even making a list of what are the things I can control and what are the things I cannot control. Because part of what I think we have a habit of doing as survivors of relational abuse is that we have a tendency to want so badly to help everyone else as a way of protecting ourselves. 
And this turns into like really wanting to change the behavior of others where in fact we actually have no control over their behavior. But we do have control over how we relate to their behavior. And if we can give ourselves this little bit of space between being stimulated and responding, maybe by using some of the grounding techniques or sensory awareness practices that I introduced earlier in this episode, those are ways that you can kind of reclaim your attention, get yourself back in the driver's seat so that you can have all of your capacities online in that moment of being triggered and you can be regulated, which allows you to choose a response with more care and attention than if you are acting out of fight flight and you're reacting. Thank you so much for calling in also because just in feeling how resonant your story is to what I've experienced in my ongoing emotional abuse relationship with my ex-husband, this story is something that I am certain many other women have experienced as kind of chronic caregivers in a culture that actually kind of encourages us to set ourselves aside to abandon any sense of individuality or identity in order to please or meet the needs of men. So this kind of goes way back into the deep roots of the patriarchy and women's roles as caregivers where we've just been habituated over many generations actually to setting aside our own needs in order to meet the needs of men in particular. So thank you caller for being willing to share. And I know that this response may not be the golden ticket that saves your marriage. And my hope is that it has just offered you some practical ways that you can work with the difficulty that's arising so that you can choose wisely how to respond in these moments when these habitual patterns of traumatic arousal arise in your relationship. If you are interested in having me answer your question or in getting some advice about some relational challenges that you're experiencing, you are more than welcome to call in. The 24-hour hotline is available for you to leave your questions and stories in our voicemail. You'll have three minutes to record, and the phone number you can call if you'd like to do this is 719-759. 9471. You're also welcome to email your questions to help at askdrcindy.com. That's help at askdoctorcindy.com. As always, if you are in danger, if your safety is in danger, please call 911 or the domestic violence hotline at 1 800 799 SAFE. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. For more resources to regulate your nervous system and help you manage fear and grief in relationship, 
please visit safewithinwellness.com. Here you can find guided mindfulness meditations and a free guide to instantly reduce your anxiety. You can also donate here so that we can continue to offer this content to you ad-free. Between now and when we meet again, remember to breathe and to give yourself permission to rest in the present moment and to be here with what's arising. Whatever you're feeling, whatever your experience, your emotions are valid and it's worthy of your time and care to give yourself the gift of your attention and to welcome you.